world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and best-selling author. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello and welcome to Inspire Us. I am your host, Paul Nadeau. I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in once again. And today, you know what I thought I'd do? I thought I would do something a little bit different and introduce myself to those of you who don't know who Paul Nadeau is or what background he comes from. I think it's important to know a little bit about your host uh, as much as possible, uh, within reason, of course. And this show, I'll dedicate to doing exactly that. First of all, let me uh, say that Currently, I am a published author and a motivational and keynote speaker. I'll get into that a little bit later. Let's go right back into my background and how I ended up here. Well, I was raised in a, a, very, um, a very violent home. My father was the embodiment of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde outdoors with his friends and uh, with the public, he was Dr. Jekyll, a smooth operator. He was a handsome man, he knew how to communicate, and he was well-liked. But inside the home, he was Mr. Hyde, and we got the blunt of it. My brother and I and my mother got beaten severely by that man, and he happened to like me the most. Now, go figure that. I, uh, I was the middle child, and, and he liked me the most. Uh, and consequently, I think I got just as many beatings as everybody else. And the beatings were so severe sometimes, uh, they bruised me, and I couldn't walk for a while, and I'd have to cover up the bruises and uh, make my way to school. Needless to say uh, that I often felt inferior and uh, afraid of communicating and acting normally as a kid because of the abuse that I had suffered in my home. I know I'm talking to a lot of people out there who have been severely abused by perhaps a a parent or a guardian. You know what it's like. You go to school and uh, in my case, I acted out because that was the only way I could get real attention. My poor mother, bless her soul, she was an abused uh, wife, an abused woman, and had to deal not only with my father, but with the, the five children in our home. And my father had also rented out a couple of spots in the basement to different General Motors workers, and she had to make their meals and take care of their, uh, their little apartments. So she didn't have much time to really uh, devote to all of his children as much as she she tried the best she could, but she also feared the beast, and we had to walk on eggshells in my home. My father used to take me on these errands, if I can use that word. 
that would consist of putting me in the trunk of his car sometimes uh, for hours. And he would drive around and do whatever it was that he was doing, which included uh, theft. Uh, I know so because I was his lookout man at more than more than one time. And he would also bring me to places that uh, a child should never go to. I'll give you an example. I remember when I was about six or seven years old, I was in the trunk of the car one summer day, and he was driving around, and we ended up uh, stopping, and he got me out of the trunk. And when I got out of the trunk, I, I looked, and we were in the country. There was a farmhouse sitting back there. And if you can picture uh, the, the Psycho uh, Hotel, the Bates Motel, actually, that was the kind of eerie feeling that this house had about it. And I joined him because he started pulling me with him. We walked towards the house. The moment I got out, I could hear what sounded like babies crying. And the, the sound upset me, obviously. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom you know, why so many babies were crying because it sounded like a number of babies were crying. Now remember, I'm about six or seven years old. I'm with my father and he's pulling me towards the house. We're walking towards the house and we start walking to the back of the house. While we were walking, that sound of the babies crying got louder and louder the closer we approached this big cement garage in the back. And as we got to the door, the sounds were horrifying. He opened the door and walked in and then he pulled me along with him. It was at that moment I realized what the sounds were. They weren't babies. This was a slaughterhouse. There were pigs that were hanging from the ceiling and the butchers were doing what they do, of course, in close proximity to me. When I looked, I was horrified. And one of the men standing no more than six or seven feet away from me with an instrument I don't need to go into did what he did in the slaughterhouse. And the um, interior, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to keep this uh, as um, unintrusive as possible. Uh, the the uh, how do you how do you put this unintrusive? Whatever was inside the pig came uh, came splattering down, and some of that blood covered me. That was some of the things that my dad uh, took me through and exposed me to at a young age. I was growing up, not really uh, believing in myself and being told not only by my dad but by my teachers in this Catholic school that I wouldn't amount to anything. You see, in school, I couldn't retain anything. I didn't really apply myself. I, I felt that I couldn't remember anything and I couldn't study. So consequently, I would get the lowest mark almost every time in the class. The other students were at least trying. I was acting out instead. I was so destructive, I think that I actually suffered ADHD, but was, of course, not diagnosed way back when. So I would get up out of my seat, I would disrupt the class, and then I would get uh, penalized for it. being a Catholic school run by many nuns. I used to get the strap and I used to get the ruler. So 
I wasn't learning anything. And when I got back home, of course, I would be walking on eggshells as the rest of my family would, and we would be fearing my father, uh, Mr. Hyde, upon his return home. I remember going through school, and the number seven, for some reason, comes up quite a bit in my life, and I don't know what that is all about. Uh, it was about the age of seven, I remember, after a beating that I had suffered at the hands of my father, a severe beating that I remember looking up with tears in my eyes and thinking to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to become a police officer so I can arrest you and I can arrest people like you. And that thought stuck in my mind. It was also uh, that that grade seven, again, the number, grade seven, was a very huge defining moment in my life. I'd gotten to grade seven somehow, even by getting lousy marks. And I think that one of the reasons that I got uh, promoted from one grade to another, that I passed one grade to another, is because my teachers really didn't want me in their class the following year. So they would push me through. I, uh, to this day, I believe that that is the truth. So in grade seven, I'm a young man and I'm starting to like girls, but everybody in the class, including the girls that I liked, always thought of me as the, the bad boy and, and the disruptive individual, uh, the loser, the one who always failed. Now one teacher in particular, a male teacher, in his class, what was customary for him to do is that he would announce that we were having a test, so he would give us some advance notice. But after we had written the test, what he would do is that he would call the student with the lowest mark to the front of the class to pick up his or her paper. Well, guess who that was? Almost 99.9% .9 that was good old me, Paul Nadeau, and my name was the first to be called, and he would do it you know, in such a way that you would... You'd feel embarrassed and take the walk of shame. Whether this was his tough love kind of approach, I have no idea. But I just remember uh, getting up and, and going to pick up my, my paper, feeling somewhat humil humiliated, but really, at the time, you know, before grade seven, I really didn't care. Now, in grade seven, on this one particular occasion, he announced that we were going to have this test. And he further announced to the classroom that he expected everybody to pass the test, except for me. He said, I expect everyone to pass except for you, Nado. I already know that you're going to fail. Well, that, that hit me hard on that particular occasion. That, that brought a lot of humiliation to me, and I, I felt uh, very... Uh, uncomfortable and, and, like I said, humiliated walking, uh, you know, in the class afterwards and, and the kids looking at me all kind of laughing. That night I did something that uh, I didn't think that I could do. I studied. And when I say that I didn't think that I could do it, I'll tell you why. Uh, many evenings, like I, I told you that my mom uh, would only have so much time for each of her children and she would take a little bit of time to be with me and we would, we would lie on her bed, and she would try to teach me the lesson that I needed to study for the test. And I remember crying, and I remember her crying, and it, nothing would, would stick in my mind. But on this particular occasion, 
on that uh, evening that I went back home, I studied on my own. And I locked myself in the room and I, I, I went over the material over and over and over again. And when I wrote the test, I felt pretty good about it. And after it was written, I thought I had a good chance of actually passing this one. A couple of days later, like I said, as was customary in his class, he would call the student with the lowest mark to the front of the classroom, and I braced myself. It wasn't me. And he called one student after another after another. And about halfway through all the students, half of the class were looking at me, wondering and shrugging their shoulders like, hey, why aren't you up there? Why... You know, why aren't you picking up your paper? And I would, I would shrug my shoulders and tell them, I, you know, we're, we're actually, I don't know. And this carried on until there were three students left in a class of about 25 kids. There were three of us left. And who was left was my smart cousin, Lise, uh, another girl by the name of Giselle, and me. Now, Lise and Giselle were always competing for the highest marks. They were what we called the Browners back then. And it was a game to them. It was a challenge for them. And I found myself among the three of them. But here's what I was thinking in my mind. I was thinking to myself, oh boy, Nado, you really blew it this time. You did so poorly. He's going to wait until these two girls have gotten their paper and then he's going to humiliate you like something you've never been humiliated about before. And the other side of me, these two voices in my head, one competing with the other, the other voice said, you know what, you got this. I, I, I think you did pretty good. So this uh, teacher then called my cousin, Giselle, to the front of the classroom, leaving, oh, I'm sorry, my cousin Lee's to the front of the classroom, leaving Giselle and I. And I was the next one to be called. I had the second highest mark in the class, much to my astonishment and to the astonishment of all the students, and I imagine to the teacher himself. So I didn't take the walk of shame that day. I proudly walked through the front of the classroom and collected my paper. But not only did I collect my paper that day, I collected confidence and belief in myself that was truly a defining moment in my life. Up until then, I always thought that I would amount to nothing because my teachers told me, my dad told me, and I believed it. And it's funny, if you are told something long enough, uh, you're told that you're unworthy, that you're ugly, that you'll never amount to anything. If you're told that often enough, you begin to believe the lies of others and you abandon what you have deep down inside of you. And sometimes that abandonment is the will to do your very best. So if I'm going to inspire you with this one story, here it is. The inspiration in this story is that you don't listen to what other people have to say. You listen to what you have to say about yourself. After all, it is your life. So getting back to that defining moment, it was then that, and after then, that I began to apply myself and work as hard as I could at everything that came my way. Now, I'm not a smart guy. I, I 
It, for me to study something, it takes a long, long time. But I would put in those hours. I believed in myself enough. So when the other kids were out playing, I would be studying and I would be going over it. And it's funny, even, whoops, and I keep on hitting that little thing. Sounds like a, a bong. No, I'm not bonging myself out. Here, I believed in myself enough that I would spend the time working and working and doing the best I could. So I started to improve, not only in my classes, but in everything else that I applied myself to. As I grew older, uh, I had so much confidence that I would get whatever jobs I applied for, and I developed the ability to really communicate with adults. Uh, my father never taught me how to uh, communicate with adults, and looking for jobs, I discovered that the way to get what you want is to really present your best self to other people. And I was able to do that at a very young age. So I wanted to become that policeman and to arrest my dad when I got older. But I did become that police officer, but never got the chance to arrest my dad. You see, he killed himself when I was 17. He tried once, and I was the, the one who discovered him with the rifle at his side. And the second time, which was two or three months later, nobody was there to, uh, to find him or, or to stop him. But at the age of 21, I became that police officer, and I proudly wore the uniform. I worked hard, and five years after joining the police department, I applied to become a detective. And back then, that was kind of unheard of to get into the detective office at such a uh, a short period of time after you start working. But I was lucky enough, I got into the youth division, and I loved it. And from that point on, I, I, I transferred into the adult division, and then later I transferred into the sexual assault and child abuse unit. And I got to, I'll stop it right there. There are a couple of experiences in my job, my career as a police officer, that were the most meaningful to me. And working in the major crimes division as a sexual assault and child abuse detective was one of the most difficult and rewarding experiences for me ever. I was exposed, of course, to a lot of sadness. We had a lot of victims uh, that would age, uh, that would range in age from the the most youngest, just months old, to um, people in their 90s. And I investigated some horrific crimes and some serial crimes, and I found some serial rapists. Uh, it was it was just that kind of job that uh, was challenging, but arresting the bad guy and and bringing him to court and helping the victim was so rewarding to me. Helping all those victims, and it was that kind of experience that you never forget. Uh, I also uh, had the wonderful opportunity of working as a hostage negotiator. I told you a little bit earlier that I had developed an ability to communi communicate with people, and I was good at it. Uh, in fact, uh, many of the, uh, the suspects that I had arrested on major crimes, including sexual assault and homicide, would confess to me. And they would actually thank me after they had confessed because I had built a, a bond with them in a very short period of time. That's something I can explain on another show or, or at another time. 
but I was able to connect with just about everybody that, that I came in contact with, and that was including uh, the victims and the suspects. So I became this hostage negotiator, and I went to the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, Training Centre. Uh, they had a, a wonderful centre in Ottawa, learned how to become a hostage negotiator. And in 2004, I applied to become a peacekeeper in Jordan. The opportunity had arisen through the United Nations and the RCMP International uh, Peacekeeping Branch to recruit police officers from different divisions uh, across uh, the, uh, the country to send them on peacekeeping missions. So I applied to go to Jordan to be a police trainer uh, at the Jordanian International Police Training Center. I was selected. What a great experience that turned out to be. A challenging experience, a great experience, and once again, one of those experiences that when I look back at my career, I think is one of the, my best. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say that it was an easy job. No. Yeah, it, this was 2005 that I flew down there and that I stayed there for a year. This was during the Iraq War. Now, the Canadians did not send soldiers to fight in the Iraq War. What we did is we sent peacekeepers, and the peacekeepers that we sent were sent to the Jordanian International Police Training Center to train uh, Iraqi police cadets. What would happen is that 3,000 cadets, police cadets from Iraq, would show up in Jordan at the training center every eight weeks, and we would train them, and then they would return to their country to be police officers. Now, we discovered uh, before being deployed, and even more so after we had arrived to the center, that many of the police cadets were in fact insurgents. They were terrorists who were dressed as police officers. It was so easy to do back then because Iraq was in, in so desperate need of police officers that they weren't able to vet the cadets that were applying to come or that came because some of them didn't want to go. They were just recruited and pushed on buses and, and driven to the training center because Iraq needed that many police officers. So we got a number of different characters. We got people who were university educated and some who had never stepped foot in a classroom or studied anything. We got coffee makers, we got uh, you know university grads, as I said, and we also had a number of people who were suffering from several illnesses, including mental illness, who were uh, who were uh, uh, recruited into the academy. So it was a very difficult job, and uh, as I said, we had a number of insurgents who had uh, worn the police uniform and were there on a mission not only to, to be trained as police officers in all the techniques that the police officers are trained in. Imagine a terrorist being sent to a police academy and being trained uh, on all the tactics that police officers use, uh, which, is, which includes uh, firearm usage, self-defense, and all that kind of stuff. So they were getting training for free and a paycheck on top of that. But also, there were a number of different insurgents who ha were on mission, and one of the missions were, was to kill internationals. We discovered this shortly after arriving at the academy. Now, partway through my mission in Jordan, 
I applied for a job as an advocate and counselor uh, instead of a teacher, because originally I was teaching criminal investigations and uh, a number of different courses, uh, including um, uh, human relations. So I got transferred into the advocacy and counseling division, which was great. My job was to counsel a lot of distressed uh, cadets who were homesick, um, depressed, they would come for counseling. They would come to ask to be uh, d deployed back home, to be repatriated back home. And uh, they would come simply because they needed somebody to talk to. And that was a tremendous experience for me. I learned so much about, you know, how horrific their, uh, their conditions were back in their country. Things that I, that I had never dreamed uh, some of the cadets, I, I could tell you some heart-wrenching stories. I won't do that here. But that was an experience that taught me so much about humanity. And it also reinforced something that I had been doing in my career ever since I began. I discovered one of the greatest lessons when I started to become a police officer, one of the greatest lessons that I learned was that we are more similar than we are different meaning that we, we experience things much in the same way. My fears will be the fears of someone else. So I discovered that by putting myself in somebody else's shoes, I'd get a better understanding of who they were and what they were all about. And the way in which I approached them, the way in which I spoke to them, the way in which I connected with them was so significant. I also discovered that what you give is usually what you get in return. So I applied the same principles that I had learned in the police department to the police cadets at the Jordanian International Police Training Center. So I treated everybody with dignity and respect. That ended up saving my life. I did a TED talk on that. What happened was while I was sitting in, in my office, uh, a young cadet came in who used to come in to talk to me and he had uh, found out some information in the police barracks. Uh, the, the students, of course, were all uh, in-housed. 3,000 cadets were, were given uh, bunks, and, and they stayed on the grounds during the eight, eight weeks. And one of them came to me, and he sat in my office, and he, he alerted me that he had heard that there was going to be an attack on the academy from within and that internationals were going to be killed. So after he left and after my day, I went to the security branch and I told our security people that there was an attack that had been planned. We didn't know when. They had heard something about it as well. But when you're on mission and when you are on a peacekeeping mission or no matter if you're a soldier, you don't get to leave just because it's going to get hot out there or just because it's going to get dangerous. You have to stay. But we were on high alert. Uh, a few days later, probably about a week or so later, I arrived early, as was customary for, uh, for those who were working in the advocacy and counseling division, because we arrived before all the other instructors arrived. Uh, we did not live on the academy grounds. We had to drive in from Amman, Jordan, which was about an hour and a half away from the secret academy in the middle of the desert. And uh, I got there early, uh, along with my partner, Yarmo Utala, a gentleman, a wonderful man. So he and I arrived really early, and uh, we would take some paperwork to the director's office. 
the paperwork I'm talking about is is uh, repatriation papers, uh, cadets that we had interviewed or cadets that had been brought to our attention who were depressed or suicidal that we needed to get back home as quickly as possible before uh, they deteriorated any further and to try to get them the help that they needed. So Yadamo and I had been to the director's office on this one uh, a very, very hot morning we were walking through the desert from the director's office back to our own office, which was a distance away. And halfway uh, there, uh, from another building, we saw 40 armed cadets rushing towards us, 40 armed Iraqi police cadets rushing towards us. Now, when I say armed, they were armed with stones and sticks and whatever they could collect. And within moments, they surrounded my partner, Yadamo and I. And we knew what was coming next. And I remember us being uh, surrounded, and, and I, I was thinking to myself, this is it. You know, this is, this is going to be the last day I'm here. Uh, but I also, you know, thought to myself that I was going to fight as, as hard as I could to prevent that from happening, or at least I was going to go out with a, with a bang and, and, and do the best I could to survive. That's what happens. You, you have to do the very best to survive. And Yadamo uh, was thinking, I'm sure, the same thing because he was much taller than me. He was about, I, I, I got to say, man, he was probably close to a foot taller than me. And I remember him looking down at me and, and actually patting me on the head. And he says to me, he says, this is going to hurt, little buddy. And I thought to myself, yes, it is. And actually, I told him, I, I said, yeah, it is. And no sooner did I say that, the cadets reached in, they grabbed us, and they started pulling us down and started beating us. And I started fighting as, as hard as I could because I wanted to survive just, just as everybody would like to survive. And no sooner did I start fighting and then the fight was on, I heard the voice of one of the cadets shouting my name from the back, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul. And he started shouting something in Arabic that I didn't understand because none of my uh, language assistants were around me. And he, what he was shouting caused all the other cadets to stop hitting us and to stop beating us. And they started moving away from us. Now, I was in a daze having been hit a few times, quite a few times. And I just remember trying to to gain my focus and look at the uh, in the direction of the voice that had called my name and when i was able to clearly see i saw the face a, a familiar face it was the face of a cadet that i had taught about four weeks earlier before being transferred into the advocacy and counseling division and that cadet as he walked towards me had the biggest smile on his face and when he got to me he reached his hand down to me, and he picked me up, and he got me to my feet. And Yadamo was helped up as well. And he looked at me, and he says, you two, you go. It's not going to be a good day. And Yadamo and I, we uh, survived that day. Our life was spared by that of a terrorist. So we managed to get to our office, and we called the security division, and of course, put a stop to all the other international uh, instructors who were coming uh, to work that morning. And we were allowed to leave and we got out safely. So a terrorist attack was averted that day. When I look back at why that happened and how that happened, I attribute that moment, uh, my life being spared by that of a terrorist, 
to the way that I had treated him and others like him, everybody, and that was with dignity and respect. So if there is a lesson to be learned here, and I'll give it to you right now, it is the lesson of treating others the way that you want to be treated yourself. It's an old lesson. It goes back to every religion you can imagine. How you treat others is usually how you're going to be treated yourself. And today, when I look at our world, at our broken world with so much anger out there and so much fighting out there, I think to myself, slow down, everybody. Just stop for a moment. Start treating each other with dignity. Start treating each other with respect. Let's take control of our lives, and let's help one another instead of destroying one another. And I carry that uh, it, that type of, of attitude, that spirit of treating others with respect and dignity has been with me for years, and it saved me more than once. And it was that attitude, it was that um, willingness to treat others as equals that got me those confessions. It actually got me out of a couple of beatings that bikers were going to put on me. I've got a story. Man, do I got a story. It's in my book, but it's a story about a, a, a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Donovan. And I won't go into it now because I'm well over the half hour mark and I'm wondering if you're still with me. And I hope you are because I got more to say. Not much more, but I got more to say. So anyway, I ended up doing that mission and coming back. And uh, that peacekeeping mission was life-changing. When I returned to Canada, it uh, brought with me um, such a, an appreciation for what we had here in North America and uh, for what others go through in other countries that we, we have no idea about. You know, here we're looking at, uh, you know, the, the anger and, and the different um, uh, riots that are going around. And, you know, we, yes, we are concerned about all this. And other countries, um, you know, we're concerned about the coronavirus, and other countries are too, but other countries have even something greater to worry about, and that is that their, their world and their, their lives are in conflict, and they're, they're at war with one another, and they're dying, and the children are being, are being killed, and it's, it's just such a, a sad situation. So when I came back to Canada, I came back uh, very... Uh, changed. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say very changed. I would say just very, very more empathetic, perhaps, towards other cultures and everything else. I, I got it. I, I got something that I hadn't had before. Anyway, I got back to Canada, and uh, I instead of returning to my job, uh, before I left, I was a teacher. I was training our police officers in our police academy, uh, but that job was no longer available to me. It had been taken and uh, they asked me what I wanted to do, and I became a polygraph examiner. Went to my police department, and I said, uh, hey, I would love to go back on one more peacekeeping mission. There's a mission opening up in Haiti, and I would like to go. And my police department refused. They said, you're too valuable to us as a polygraph examiner. We can't possibly send you. So they didn't. And uh, I had reached about the 31-year mark in my police career, and I had also started to do some film and television acting, which I really enjoyed. And I was starting to get some jobs, which I really enjoyed. And, and uh, I was married at the time. And I thought to myself, well, if they won't let me go on another mission, maybe it's time for me to retire and see if I can get uh, a mission uh, as a retired officer, because they were doing that. They were uh, allowing retired police officers to go back on mission. And I really wanted to go. So I went to my wife uh, at the time, and, and I explained to her that I had a desire to um, 
to retire and pursue my acting career and also to go back on mission. And she supported it. So I did retire. But life is sometimes very unpredictable. And boy, don't we know that? I mean, if you look at everything that's going on right now uh, with uh, COVID-19, we could say that last year uh, in December, most of us would not have dreamed that we would be on lockdown right now. So life is unpredictable. We have no idea what's going to happen next. And that was the case when I was retired, recently retired, when my ex came to me and said that she didn't want the marriage to go on any further. So I found myself... uh, uh, well, separating and divorcing, and uh, my life kind of tumbling down. I, I had left my secure job as a police officer. Uh, the job is in acting was going well, but it wasn't going to pay all the bills, so I had to kind of redefine myself. And uh, I managed to get a short contract with the Office of the Independent Police Review Director uh, in Toronto, Ontario, and I really enjoyed that job, but I also had to make plans for the future. And I had to really think about what was going on. I, uh, after I had finished that contract job, and while I was looking for some more employment, I had some time on my hands. And I don't like to be idle. I like to be doing things or learning things or experiencing things. So I was wondering what I was going to do. And a lot of people had told me uh, over a number of years, hey, Paul, you ought to write a book. You should write a book. You, you have such an interesting life. And I thought to myself, you know what? It's probably a good time for me to write that book. So I went to uh, my computer and opened up uh, Microsoft Word and looked at uh, this blank document on my computer, having no idea how to write a book or what the book was even going to be about. So I decided to go to a chapters store and pick up a book on how to write a book. Go figure. Yeah, I actually did that. I went to the store, picked up a book on how to write a book, came back home, and I read about 40 pages of that book and put it down. Stupid me. I should have read the entire book. Because after putting down that book, I, I just started writing. And I just started pouring these, these words and these thoughts onto these pages in this document. And the problem is that, number one, I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I was just writing words on paper, and, and whatever ideas came to, to mind, I, I would pour on these, pap- uh, on these pages. And um, I, I also uh, didn't have the, the inspiration, uh, the commitment, and uh, the accountability that I needed to be an author. I would go, and I would write for uh, about an hour, and then I would leave, and I wouldn't come back to it for a couple of days or, or a week and come back and I would type for another two, three hours and then leave it. Would come back another two weeks, would come back to this document, would start typing again and putting these thoughts. But I'd have to read what I had already written so I could catch up with where I had left off. And it just wasn't working out. Uh, the, um, the commitment wasn't there. The consistency wasn't there. The accountability wasn't there. And this went on for about a year and a half. And after about a year and a half of of catching up and and just not really being consistent with it, I looked down at at what I had written, and I knew I had some good stuff in there. It just didn't look anything like a book, and uh, I should have read the rest of the book on how to write a book. It would have told me, dude, 
You need to get some chapters in there. You need to get some, uh, some, you need to have a plan on how this is all going to work, you know. So uh, I looked at it and I thought, am I ever going to finish? Am I ever going to be committed enough to finish this thing? I started it. I spent a few hours on it, quite a few hours on it. Geez, it's been a year and a half. So I did something. I went to Facebook and I made a post. And the post said something like, uh, hey, everybody, I've decided to write that book. And that's about all I had said about that, not thinking that anybody would, uh, would reply. As it turns out, I had about 20 of my friends uh, and my followers uh, send me uh, messages or, or reply to my post saying, glad you're doing it, can't wait to read it. And that was it. Again, another defining moment where I realized if you um, make yourself accountable to the community out there, to your friends out there, make yourself accountable to yourself and get this done. So I went back and I really applied myself. I, uh, I did it. Uh, I, was, I was consistent. I started um, dividing the, the, uh, the chapters and, and the subchapters, and it started to look like a book. In fact, about two years after I had started, it looked like a good book. I did a, a great thing. I um, contacted my brother who read it, and he thought it was, was very, very good. And uh, I, I wanted to find an editor, and he put me in touch with a great editor. And, uh, you know, she helped me edit the book, and then I had something that I was quite proud of. And I didn't think it was going to go anywhere, uh, because in Canada it was very difficult to get one of your works published through a, a big publishing house. Um, but uh, I, I decided to self-publish and uh, I self-published the book. Sometimes, uh, you know, when you least expect it, something pretty magic can happen, and something did. I was on LinkedIn, and I had published my book, so it was available on Amazon, and I remember being contacted on LinkedIn by an editorial director for Harper, Harper Collins Canada, and he invited me for coffee. And it was in 2017, on my birthday, that we met for coffee. And uh, as we were sitting there, he pulled out a copy of my book. At the time, it was called Hostage to Myself. And he pulled it out, and he slid it on the table, and he said, we want to publish this worldwide. And a big grin came over my face, and <laughs> what do you think? Of course, I said yes. And they did publish it. They published it uh, under the title, uh, Take Control of Your Life. And now that book is a self-help book on how to deal with anxiety, stress, um, and self-sabotage and depression. And it is helping a lot of people. It is making a difference in a lot of people's lives. And, and I'm very proud of that work. And it, it, it's very exciting to see that that book is helping a lot of people. Now, another thing that happened to me again, when I say that sometimes when you least expected, some pretty amazing things can happen to change the course of, of your life and your world. And something like that happened to me in 2014. Uh, a woman, again, reached out to me on LinkedIn, and she was in charge of the TED Talks in Toronto. And she had read on my profile that I was a hostage negotiator. And she asked me if I would be interested to speak to a business group on negotiations. And uh, it was a, a non-paying gig, but I was happy to do it. 
I love to talk, and, and uh, this was a great opportunity to talk about something I was passionate about, and that's negotiations. So I, I happily said yes. And I met with her and the business group, and I put on a talk for them, and it was well-received, and she loved it. They loved it. I got some great compliments afterwards. I felt good about it. And then this woman and I started to chat, and she says, you've got an interesting background. And uh, I, I told her during the course of our conversation about my experience in Jordan, where my life was saved by that terrorist. And she thought that was fascinating, because the key to that, of course, is how I had treated uh, everybody with dignity and respect. And she said, that's the kind of message that we should have uh, on TED. She says, now, I can't guarantee that you will become a TED speaker, but if you put your application in, we will review it, and our panel will make the final decision. And uh, I did. And as uh, luck and, and fate would have it, and open to the universe, whatever you want to call it, I was called to do a TED Talk on that topic, and I did one in 2015. And I think I called it Finding Humanity Amid uh, Global Unrest, uh, Terrorism and Global Unrest. That message uh, that I gave in my TED Talk in 2015 should actually be listened to today. It didn't get all that many hits uh, on YouTube. When I gave it in that packed auditorium of, th of a thousand people uh, in 2015, I got a standing ovation. It was a message that people wanted to hear, but I don't think people are really looking for it now in, in the TED Talks because it, it has a deal with terrorism, and, uh, or at least they think it does, and actually it doesn't. Um, the key and central message to my TED Talk is that if we each treat each other with dignity and respect, if we each try to understand each other, we can connect and we can make a huge difference and we can get along in this world. That's the key message. So that was my TED Talk. And I was uh, very proud of both my accomplishments, the book and the TED Talk. And so much has happened. As a result of giving that TED Talk, I became a, uh, a keynote speaker on the topics of uh, negotiations in business and in life, and also on conflict resolution. When the book, my book, Take Control of Your Life, started to take off and I was getting a lot of uh, letters and emails from readers who were telling me how much my book has impacted and improved the quality of their life and the quality of their thoughts, I became a motivational speaker in the area of mental wellness. And I was honored a couple of years back to have been selected by the Canadian Mental Health Association of Canada to be their opening keynote speaker on mental wellness. And I'm going to uh, leave you with a few thoughts here uh, about my life. So that's a little bit about my history. That's just a few things. Number one, going back to my childhood and going back to, you know, how I was treated as a kid. I've got to say that no matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to you, it is not what others say about you that defines you. It's what you say and believe about yourself that does. So if you are feeling that other people don't understand you, they can't possibly understand you, and they keep putting you down, don't listen to them. Listen to yourself and recognize that you have the ability to choose how you respond 
to what happens to you. People can't make you feel bad unless you give them the permission to make you feel bad. You have the power to respond positively despite the negativity. Believe in yourself. Apply in yourself. Remember, if you want to if you want to do something in this world, you've got to put the the power and the energy into it and believe in yourself. You've got to build that confidence and do what you think you can't do and don't just aim low, aim high. Aim high and go for it because if you aim too low, you might just get it and stop right there. So aim as high as you possibly can and go for what you want in this world. It's there for the taking. You just got to work for it. You got to believe it. You got to believe in yourself. Those are the things that make successes out of people. When I look at some of the most inspirational and successful people out there, they are people who may not have believed in themselves and who had failed many, many times, but they didn't stop right there. It's like the the Rocky movies that I love so much, uh, you know, with Sylvester Stallone. The one, you know, movie that I'm thinking about right now was called Rocky Balboa. It's a speech that he gives to his son, and his son, you know, is is um, not believing in himself and he's, he's not succeeding in life and he, and he really um, resents his father for having the limelight and for having done so well and he feels like he's not doing anything and he's not. He's really not applying himself. He's not doing anything. And he's taking it on, ooh, dad, you know, you, you did this to me and, and oh my goodness, you know, like you're, I feel bad because, you know, you're such a success and, you know, Sylvester Stallone's character, Rocky, uh, outside the restaurant, you know, he tells his son how much he loves him. And then he goes into this wonderful speech. And I highly recommend that you look it up and, and you just, uh, you know, you listen to it and you apply it to your life. He tells his son, you know what? Life is a hard and cruel place and it's going to knock you down to your knees. And it doesn't matter how many times you are knocked down. What matters is how many times you get back up. And he goes on to say that, you know, winners get back up. So I'm going to leave you with this little bit of inspiration on this piece. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Don't listen to the negativity of other people. Don't believe that you are unworthy or unable. Tell yourself that you are worthy. Be your own best friend. Be the one who inspires you. You are not going to be rescued in this life. People are not going to come and rescue you. That rescue comes from within. It comes from the power of choice. It comes from the confidence. It comes from believing in yourself. That's what makes the difference in this world. Believe in yourself and don't listen to no. Listen to you. Don't live in the past. I'll be, I'll be talking about that topic in depth on another podcast. But right now, believe in yourself. Now let's go into my writing the book and what you can take from this. When I wrote the book and after I had published or had it published by HarperCollins, a few people came to me and they would sit down and they'd go, you know, Paul, um, I've always thought about writing a book and I'd love to write a book. And I'd listen to what they had to say uh, and then I would ask them a simple question. Did you start? And they would say, no, you know, I'm thinking about it. Well, here's the thing. If you're thinking about it and it's something that you truly want to do, do it. Uh, learn a little bit from me. Learn how to do it well. You know, study it, do whatever, but start. Just do it. If you want to if you want to learn how to play the guitar, uh, if, if you want to write a book, if you want to learn how to cook, if you want to start your own business, start. 
There's no better time than the present. Yeah, sure, it's going to be scary. Yeah, sure, you may not know where you're going to start. But start and put your heart and soul into it. The thing is, how bad do you want it? I ask people, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want to become that author? How bad do you want to become that business person? How bad do you want to ask that person out or, or to improve your quality of life or to stop an addiction? How bad do you want it? You've got to want it bad enough to put your heart and your soul right into it. That's what makes winners. That's what makes you. You know what? At the end of this world, folks, I, I do not want to be visited on my deathbed by the ghosts of missed opportunities who say to me, you know, Paul, uh, you should have done this and you should have done that. And if you would have, you would have succeeded. You would have got this. You would have got that. No, I don't want to be visited by the ghost of missed opportunities. I want to be visited by the spirits who surround my bed and go, dude, wow, that was awesome. What a life. What a life. I want to uh, leave something in this world and I want to feel fulfilled in this world. I'm not ready to settle and there is more in store for me. In fact, I've just written a screenplay uh, for uh, a film based on, you know, a true story and uh, it's in the hands of Netflix and fingers crossed it's going to be picked up by them because it's a project that my writing partner and I uh, believe in and that my agent believes in and that a couple of very popular Canadian actors believe in. So I'm always looking for the next challenge and the next thing. So if you're thinking of doing something, start. Ask yourself how bad you want it and start. Just do it. And just to leave you with a couple of more thoughts, um, I know that this life right now is not easy and that a lot of people are putting on these smiles and uh, they are um, showing uh, a side of them that really doesn't exist, but they're showing it on social media. Big smiles, happiness, life is going well. Meanwhile, inside, they have these voices in their heads that are bringing them down, that are keeping them hostages to negativity and to sadness. And it's difficult to get out of, of you know, a, a rut or, or feeling depressed, especially in these turbulent, unsettling and um, crazy times, like COVID craziness, pandemic craziness. Um, so much anger in the world. If you're feeling that you are lonely, depressed, and unable to go further, please seek someone that you can open up to. There's also distress centers who have qualified people who can help you through. If you're feeling lonely, remember that we were born into this world into a family. So we were born to depend on one another. We weren't born into a matrix, into these little pods. We were born into families. We were born to work with each other and to count on each other. And one day, I may be feeling blue, and I'll have to turn to you, and I'll, I'll ask you for help, and, and you'll give it. And then one day, you'll ask for my help, and I'll give it. We have got to become more vulnerable with one another, 
We've got to share our experiences. We've got to tell our stories because we are more similar than we are different. There are people out there who are going through the same thing. And if you open up to them, they'll open up to you and we'll help each other through what we're going through. These times, we really must be vulnerable with one another. People think of vulnerability as a dark emotion. They associate it to sadness, to loss, to, to hopelessness. But it's not, folks. Being vulnerable opens the gate. It is a gateway. It opens the door to joy, to connectivity, to enjoying one, one another, to being with one another. It is the bridge that brings us together. We've got to start being more vulnerable with one another, folks. That is what is going to help heal this world, and we need to help heal one another. I will be the light for you, and you will be the light for me. You know, uh, Leonard Cohen, back in 1995, the Canadian artist who wrote Hallelujah, wonderful man, uh, sadly departed, but he wrote uh, a song back in 1995 he called Anthem. And one of the lyrics in that song was this. He said, there is a, a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets through. And when you listen to that lyric again, I'll, I'll repeat it. There's a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets through. We have all suffered our cracks. Some of us have suffered our breaks. But each and every one of us has within us a light that can get through the cracks of others and illuminate their worlds. Let's be the light for those who are suffering. Let's be that light that helps one another to get through this tough life. Folks, we have it within us to make this world a happier place. We have it within us to help each and every one of us get through. So let's start becoming the light and let's join hands, really, and I, and I say that, let's help one another through these turbulent, tough times. Let's work together. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to this long podcast. I didn't think it was going to go this long. Sometimes when I talk, you just can't shut me up. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this, uh, this show and that you got something from it. And I am going to leave you with these words. When you're out there, inspire us. Inspire us with your life. Inspire us with your wisdom. And let's inspire one another. Thank you so much for joining me. Until next time, I'm Paul Nadeau, and you are listening to Inspire Us. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 